0: A child on the phone with 911 saying they were in a classroom full of victims. The lead starts right now. Instead of enjoying the start of summer vacation like 10 year olds should be doing, two of the Uvalde shooting victims are being laid to rest. This is the investigation into the police response ramps up. Plus, some relief for desperate parents is supposed to be hitting store shelves, but it's still not clear how parents can actually get this new batch. A baby formula. And then a holiday weekend travel headache. Thousands of flights canceled and things are not any easier if you're driving. Gas prices are ridiculous. Welcome to a special edition of The Lead. I'm Pamela Brown in for Jake Tapper on this Memorial Day. And we start with our national lead and the first funeral services for the victims of the horrific massacre in Uvalde, Texas. Today, the families and the community honor the memories of 10-year-old A. Marie Garza and 10-year-old Maite Rodriguez. Services for their classmates and their teachers are planned over the next week. And amid the grief in Uvalde, a demand for answers as to why police waited outside the hallway for more than an hour before breaking into the classroom where the killing was happening. And now the Justice Department says it will review the law enforcement response to the shooting. CNN's Adrian Bratis starts off our coverage from Yavaldi with more on today's service and new audio, and new audio uh, dispatch, which reportedly details a child's desperate
1: 911 calls from inside the school.: This is how those who love 10-year-old Amory Jo Garza will remember her, a decade of photos showing a happy girl with a sweet smile described by family as sassy, funny, and a little diva who hated wearing dresses. Memories of happier times as her family, friends, and community says goodbye during visitation and a rosary service.
2: It brings me joy to know that she, that I got an opportunity to have such a great daughter, and you know, I, ch- I tried to be the best father that I could be. Just down the road,
1: another grieving family says goodbye to Maite Rodriguez, also 10 years old. I love her, that I miss her, that I'm proud of her. She wanted to be a marine biologist before she could even say the word she loved animals as families bury their children. There are growing questions and outrage about the police response. The Justice Department now says it will review the response, which Texas officials say deviated from active shooter protocols.
2: Had they gotten there sooner and and somebody would have taken immediate action. Uh, we might have more of those children here today, including my daughter.
1: Investigators now say 19 officers waited outside the classroom where the gunman was for about 50 minutes. We're now getting our first glimpse at some of the information that was being relayed to officers at the school. ABC News obtained audio, which appears to be from one 911 operator relaying information from a child inside the classroom. CNN has not been able to independently confirm the audio. The source is unclear, as is what point in the incident it was heard. On Friday, Texas Public Safety Director said there were at least Eight nine one one calls from two callers in the school.
2: We have a child is in the
1: Texas State Senator Roland Gutierrez said President Biden told him that Robb Elementary School would be raised and rebuilt as part of a federal grant process for schools where there have been mass shootings.
3: What kind of world are we living in that legislation was created for raising these schools.
1: For some parents here, those questions coming too late.
2: No matter who is held responsible, it's, it's not gonna bring my daughter back. She was the perfect daughter to me.
1: And today starts a week, really weeks of remembrance for these families as they face their new reality, life without their children. One mother described her daughter as her heartbeat, and it's the rhythm of this community that's helping these families move forward as visitation and a rosary are underway today. Meanwhile, we just spoke with the cousin of Maite. She tells me her little cousin died a hero. Her classmates told her family she was brave, telling the other children in her classroom where to hide before that shooter entered the room. Pamela. Wow, chills. Oh.
0: Adrian brought us. thank you so much. Just so sad. Well, Texas officials say the decision not to breach the classroom sooner was made by one man, the police chief of the Uvalde School District. And now CNN is learning the Justice Department will soon select a leader for the, quote, critical incident review into the overall police response. CNN's Nick Watt spoke with law enforcement experts about what should have happened inside that school last Tuesday.
3: I do believe that this is uh, absolutely one of the worst police failures in modern U.S. history. Those defenseless children in those classrooms had nothing. They were relying on the police. But the police were waiting outside the classrooms.
4: <laughs>
3: treating this not as an active shooter, but as a barricaded suspect situation. For the benefit of hindsight, where I'm sitting now, of course it was not the right decision, it was a wrong decision, period. There's no, no excuse for that. So the killer was inside a school filled with children for over an hour before he was stopped dead and not before he murdered Alfredo Garza's daughter, Amory Jo. They needed to act immediately, you know. There's, there's kids involved, you know, there's a gun involved. Officials say this man made the decision not to go in. Chief Pedro Pete Arredondo of the Uvalde School District, PD.
5: Safety measures were taken to make sure that we had a safe release for the rest of the district uh, for, the, for throughout our city of Uvalde.
3: A pair of brief appearances in the hours after the slaughter and Chief Arredondo hasn't been seen by the press since.
5: As far as his employment status is concerned, That's something that is beyond my control and I have no knowledge about.
3: Could lives have been saved? Fewer kids shot? Injured kids treated earlier and survived? That remains unclear. There was an initial burst of fire, then a lull, during which kids inside called 911 pleading for help, then more shots, seemingly directed at a door.
6: There's so much information, so much communication, so much room for error that the only thing we do know is that by eliminating the threat quickly, uh, you will save the most lives.
3: A 50-year-old Uvalde native, Arredondo, was approved as chief by the school board in 2020. At the time, the super said they were impressed by his experience, knowledge and community involvement with, they said, 27 years in law enforcement at another school district in Laredo, Texas, and here in the city of Uvalde Police Department. In March, Arredondo posted about active shooter training at the Uvalde High School. That doctrine
5: requires officers, every officer lines up, stacks up, goes and finds where those rounds are being fired at and keeps shooting until the
3: subject is dead, period. So Arredondo's decision went against established active shooter doctrine and, we're told, against the facts on the ground.
5: From what we know, We believe there should have been an entry at that as soon as you can.
3: Now, Pamela, we just heard Adrian reporting about those harrowing 911 calls coming from kids inside the classrooms. Interestingly, Chief Arredondo's first job out of the academy was as a 911 dispatcher, so he knew this system from pretty much every side. Why he reacted this way, we don't know. Of course, we've reached out to him for comment and haven't heard back yet. Now, He was also elected to the Uvalde City Council Mm -hmm. earlier this month. He was due to be sworn in tomorrow. It's unclear whether that swearing in is actually going to take place. Pamela.
0: All right, Nick, thanks so much. And joining me now to discuss all of this is Anthony Barksdale. He is the former acting Baltimore police commissioner. So, Commissioner, you heard there in Nick's piece that the chief, Arredondo, just posted about active shooter training At the Uvalde High School just a few months ago. So it seems he should have been aware of the protocol, but went against it. Is that how you're seeing this?
7: Well, that's how I take it. You can have all the training in the world. You can say that you train, but when it's time to implement that training in a real life situation, that's when it really matters. And we saw in those poor families, those poor children, those teachers. They saw a complete failure and they're paying a horrible price because of poor decision making.
0: How does that failure happen though?
7: This is uh, is something I, I keep looking at the situation and trying to figure out what went wrong beyond this chief being in charge of the incident. I mean, we're, we know that the kids are still calling. So they're still alive. They're still calling 911. You still know that there's gunfire inside the school. You go in. And just because there's a lull in action doesn't mean that you stop. He chose to be violent. He chose to shoot at officers and slaughter little kids and teachers. He chose that. You kill him. No ifs, ands, and buts about it. I, I can't dance around it, Pam. You have to take them out. Yeah. And they failed. And,
0: and I think it's important to emphasize, as much as this appears to be a complete police failure, ultimately, the original sin was this 18-year-old who bought these AR-15s and did this. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, local officials say they expect to get a ballistics report. What should that tell us?
7: They're gone. These kids are gone. The ballistics reports, if, maybe they'll try to figure out if there was any... Uh, it, it, the ballistics report just would tell me what type of weapon was used. Maybe they want to try to see if the shell casings match up to uh, his grandmother's incident. But it, it really... It's not much in this. Maybe if you want to do a study and figure out, hey, if these are the type of weapons that they're that they're using in these active shooter incidents, just like we saw in Buffalo, these uh, kids are bringing high-powered assault rifles to slaughter innocent people. So maybe we take a look at what type of ballistic shields uh, police are, are using for these incidents and equipment. But uh, those kids, those teachers are gone. Yeah.
0: What about Uh, this DOJ review? Do you think it will change anything?
7: What didn't we learn from Columbine? We knew the best practices from Columbine. Don't wait. Engage, engage, fight, fight, fight. What are you going to tell me? Uh, You're going to study why they failed? Okay, fine. But we knew what we should do, and no one did it, except for those agents that came And put him down. They they overrode bad orders and they did their jobs. The jobs that everyone else there, standing, stacked up, should have been doing.
0: I mean, I think we're all feeling that emotion that that you're expressing right now. It's just unfathomable. Can't wrap your head. We could have
7: saved their lives. We could have saved some of those kids. That's what I believe. You go in, engage, even if you draw the fire to you, get him off of those kids. Get him off of those teachers. Shoot at us. Don't shoot at them.
0: And there are indications um, that at least some of the kids did bleed out. It's just such an agonizing thing to even think about. I want to listen on this note to what Texas State Senator Gutierrez had to say about this. Let's hear what
3: he said. I uh, sat down with a a set of family yesterday. Mom told me that her child had been shot by one bullet through the back, through the kidney area. The first responder that they eventually talked to said that their child likely bled out. In that span of 30 or 40 minutes extra, that little girl might have lived.
0: Commissioner, what does accountability look like to you? What needs to happen next?
7: Do the uh, Let the DOJ do their investigation, but whoever, uh, it, it appears clearly that this is the chief, but I still think we need to continue the investigation. Um, this chief should no longer be a chief if, if he's the one calling the shots. It's clear that the training, the best practices, that they all say they know and they, and they understand it failed. So did they fail? or did the best practices fail? I believe that they failed, not the best practices. We know what to do. So this department, these departments, because it wasn't just uh, uh, that chief's department there, there were other departments there. They all need to take a look at what they're doing because they let down those children and those teachers. Anthony,
0: thank you so much. And a small sign of progress from one Republican senator from Texas on Bipartisan Gun Reform Talks. That's next. International lead Memorial Day in the United States. President Biden is honoring the fallen service members who have fought and died for the U.S. Despite the holiday, gun control remains front and center after that deadly mass shooting in Yvalde, Texas. And now, as CNN's M.J. Lee reports, the president is promising to do something on the matter, even while recognizing there are limits to his presidential power. We can never
6: repay the sacrifice, but we will never stop trying.
8: President Biden marking Memorial Day with a visit to Arlington National Cemetery, honoring the American men and women killed while serving in the U.S. military.
6: Freedom is worth the sacrifice. Democracy is not perfect, but it's worth fighting for, if necessary, worth dying for.
8: The solemn commemoration coming as the country continues to grieve the horrific mass shooting at an elementary school in Uvalde, Texas, that left 19 children and two adults dead those killings reigniting the fraught national debate on gun control and putting new pressure on the president and lawmakers in washington alike to take meaningful action i
6: know that it makes no sense to be able to purchase something that can fire up to 300 rounds the second amendment was never absolute
8: the president signaling a hint of optimism about some of his gop colleagues in congress
6: i think things have gotten so bad that everybody's getting more rational about it. At least that's my hope and prayer. I consider McConnell a rational Republican, and Cornyn corny as well. Um, I think there's a recognition in their part that the we can't continue like
8: this. You can't do this. But Biden also indicating that his own hands are largely tied when it comes to major actions pushed by gun reform advocates.
6: I can't outlaw a weapon. I can't, you know, change the background set. I can't do that.
8: Over the weekend, the president and the first lady traveling to Uvalde to console a traumatized and broken community. As he left church, Biden confronted with anguished onlookers. Back in Washington, some Democratic lawmakers also sounding cautiously optimistic.
3: There are more Republicans interested in talking about finding a path forward this time than I have ever seen since Sandy Hook. We're talking about uh, red flag laws. We're talking about strengthening and expanding the background check system.
8: While many Republicans appear eager to focus on strengthening school security systems.
9: The things that would have the most immediate and succinct effect and tangible effect on these things. And that's actual security at a school.
8: Now, a quick update on some of those conversations that are starting to happen on Capitol Hill. Republican Senator John Cornyn of Texas just told reporters that there is going to be a bipartisan group of lawmakers getting together tomorrow virtually to try to figure out some kind of framework uh, on gun reform. Some of the issues that he mentioned include uh, mental health issues, background checks and potential limitations on who can buy guns and maintain them. Now, it's important to note that President Biden earlier today said that he hasn't really started in earnest those conversations with Republican lawmakers, that he has been focused so far on trying to console uh, the members of the Uvalde community. But he did promise again that he is going to continue pushing those lawmakers for progress. Pam. All right, MJ Lee,
0: thank you so much. In the meantime, President Biden says no to
8: Ukraine on a request
0: they say is necessary in order to defeat Russia. We'll go live to Kyiv next. In our world lead, Ukrainian President Vladimir Zelensky made his first trip outside of Kiev since the Russian invasion began more than three months ago. And he thanked Ukrainian troops in the eastern region of Kharkiv and vowed to take back Russian-controlled territory. Let's get right to CNN's Matthew Chance live in Kiev. Matthew, Russian forces are trying to surround Ukrainian troops in the eastern region of Luhansk. What exactly does that look like?
9: Yeah, well, it doesn't look good for the Ukrainian forces because I can tell you there's a lot of fierce fighting taking place around the city of Severodonetsk, which is the, you know, the biggest, the last remaining city really um, that is um, under Ukrainian control in that region of, of eastern Ukraine. Um, if the Russians take control of it, as looks likely at the moment, that would mean a big political win for them because it means they've got you know, full control over that Luhansk region which is a significant step towards taking control of the whole donbass region in the east uh, of ukraine there's fighting taking place elsewhere as well in fact as russia concentrates its troops up there in the northeast of ukraine to the, towards the south the ukrainians say they're making progress in a counter offenses that they've launched there uh, seizing back territory that's been previously conquered by the russians killing Russian soldiers and destroying Russian military vehicles. And so there is still very much an ebb and flow uh, in the fierce fighting that's taking place in eastern Ukraine right now, Pam.
0: And today, President Biden said the U.S. would not send the Ukrainians long-range rockets capable of reaching Russia. What are Ukrainian officials saying about that?
9: Well, they're not taking that, first of all, as a definitive you know, answer to the to the request about sending long-range artillery. I mean, it depends what kind of Ammunition is that comes along with, with that artillery, depending on the range of it. But you know, look, what Ukrainian officials are telling me is, is that they won't be able to win this war. It's unlikely they'll be able to win this war without those long range uh, rockets, artillery systems from the United States and other uh, allied countries. They need it, they say, to respond to long range attacks that they're suffering uh, from the Russian side. Um, and so there's still some debate underway about what systems, if any, will be delivered as part of that big $40 billion uh, package of assistance, including military aid, that the United States has agreed to, to give Ukraine.
0: All right, Matthew Chance and Kyiv, thank you. Well, much-needed baby formula is heading to store shelves, but how do parents make sure that they can get access to it? That is key. We'll be right back. Turning to our health lead and the worsening crisis for families as they hunt for baby formula to feed their children. New data showing almost three quarters of formula products nationwide, some 70 percent, were out of stock the week of May 27th. That's up from 45 percent the week before. But some relief may soon be on the way. Nestle says tens of thousands of pounds of baby formula from overseas was scheduled to be sent over the weekend to stores. C- CNN senior medical correspondent Elizabeth Cohen joins us live with this. Uh, so, Elizabeth, this is promising news. Where do things stand right now?
2: Pam, let's take a look at what, what hopefully will be coming. Uh, to store shelves soon, but the, well, I shouldn't say soon, over the coming weeks. None of this is going to happen super, super soon. So let's take a look. Tens of thousands of pound, pounds of Nestle formula was supposed to be sent to stores this weekend. We haven't heard from Nestle whether that actually happened, what stores it went to, none of that. FDA has allowed an Australian company called Bubs to export enough formula for 27.5 million eight ounce bottles. But that, that's a lot. But note that they've just allowed them to do it. They haven't actually started doing it. Also, half a million pounds of formula from Dannon is expected to reach U.S. parents in the first half of July. So again, note that this is not going to be immediate or much of this won't be immediate for parents. The hope is really that this will happen over the coming weeks and months, but parents will likely still have to struggle to find formula. Pam?
0: Right. I mean, that's the problem. They're still going to have to struggle in the near term. But uh, when these do hit the shelves, I mean, how how can parents find out whether these formula shipments are headed to a store near them?
2: You know, Pam, that's a great question. And the answer is we don't know. So we've asked the Nestle folks. All right. So it's you know, we've got some of this formula, not a huge amount, but we've got some formula going out to stores. Which stores? How will we know when it's there? How can parents find it? And no answer from them. No answer from the federal government either.
0: Well, you spoke to a few moms who are pumping their own breast milk to help families desperate to find formula. I think this is incredible because, uh, as we both know, pumping is not easy. And it's a real drain in many ways. More, no pun intended. Um, so, tell us about this. <laughs>
2: Right, Pam. It's not fun. It's time consuming. I I know lots of moms who love to nurse. I don't know any mom who loves to to pump, but these are women who are pumping for other families. This is amazing. I want to introduce you to um, Marie Millen. She's a nurse in Oregon. She's breastfeeding her six-month-old baby, and she's donating some of that frozen milk to a milk bank. She posted on Instagram, in one day, she donated more than a gallon of milk. Hillary Demon, who's a filmmaker and professor in Pittsburgh, she's mom to one year old Remy. She's done nursing. She's not nursing anymore, but she is going to pump for six more months just so that she can donate that milk to families who can't find formula. And Corey Callahan, this is actually amazing. A lot of people don't even know this is possible. She has three daughters, but she stopped nursing her youngest daughter a year and a half ago. So, with the help of the Leche League, she's going to relactate. She is going to try to bring that milk supply back after being dormant for a year and a half. And then she will donate that milk to families that need it near her home in Missouri. Really just an incredible investment of time and uh, so giving of themselves. So
0: giving. Wow. Elizabeth Cohen, thank you. Well, the first big weekend of the summer travel season is marked by major flight cancellations and record high gas prices. What's the outlook for the rest of summer? A closer look next. Returning to our money lead in this special edition of The Lead, a disastrous start to the summer for airlines across the U.S. More than 2,000 flights were canceled from Friday through today. Airports in New York and Washington, D.C. were the two most affected after Friday's storm sparked a series of delays and cancellations. CNN's Pete Muntean is live at Reagan National Airport to discuss the new action airlines are taking to try to prevent this happening again. Pete. Uh, What caused all these flight cancellations over the weekend, and what are airlines saying?
5: Well, Pamela, airlines are really facing this huge test right now. Not only is this the first major travel rush since the end of the transportation mask mandate, but airlines got a lot smaller during the pandemic, and now they're facing worker shortages and having to cancel these flights. Look at the latest data from FlightAware 395 flight cancellations in the United States today. That means about 2,200 flights in total have been canceled in the United States since Friday, when so many people are coming back to air travel. TSA screened about 2.1 million people at airports across the country just yesterday. It anticipates screening 2.2 million people today. These numbers, about 90 percent of where we were back in 2019 before the pandemic. And the TSA says as we go deeper into the summer travel season, it is likely we will see levels of air travel higher than pre-pandemic levels. I asked Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg in an interview about this, and I wanted to know whether or not airlines are up to this challenge. Here's what he said. We saw a lot of airlines during the pandemic thinning out their schedules and thinning out their workforce, not knowing when demand was going to return. Now, faster than expected, the demand has come roaring back, and they are struggling to keep up. That's true whether we're talking about flight attendant crews, whether we're talking about pilots. And so we've got to make sure that we have short-term and long-term approaches. One of those short-term solutions, airlines proactively canceling flights and trimming their schedules as we go further into the summer. One of the latest airlines to make such an announcement, Delta Airlines, which says it is slashing about 100 flights a day from its flight schedule during the month of July. We will see as this continues, Pamela, airlines are really facing a crunch right now.
0: Yeah, clearly. All right, Pete, stay with me. I want to bring in Rana faruhar She is a global business columnist and associate editor for the Financial Times, and she's also a CNN global economic analyst. So, Rana, Americans are not just struggling with airline travel, right? But also the cost of gas is at a record high. Today, the national average for a gallon of gas is four dollars sixty-two cents. That's up forty-four cents from last month, and almost a dollar and fifty cents more than last Memorial Day. But clearly it seems people aren't letting that stop them from traveling. Do you expect that trend to keep up over the summer?
6: You know, it's a great question. I was really surprised. Over half of American families are still planning to be traveling this weekend. Um, You know, the thing that we have to wait and see about, though, is that ordinarily gas prices should be peaking about now. But the projections, given the war in Ukraine, given supply chain issues, the resurgence of of the global economy, it's looking like they're going to be higher in June, July and August, which is very unusual. So I do expect travel to drop off somewhat, what I'm already hearing and seeing is families saying, okay, maybe we aren't going to drive eight hours or 12 hours to that beach vacation. Maybe we're going to stay, um, you know, do something like a staycation or, or maybe stay in state, drive two hours, four hours. People are really making those kinds of calculations right now because it's adding up to many hundreds of, of dollars per trip to, uh, to make those longer trips. Right. Whether you're driving or
0: flying, um, it's going to cost you. Right. I mean, Pete, the U.S. Bureau of Labor Statistics said airline fares increased 18 percent from March to April of this year. That's the highest one month increase since 1963. And you pair that with the airlines canceling flights and rising gas prices for Americans with summer plans. What should they be bracing for?
5: They should be bracing for an increase in the cost. That is the biggest thing that we've been underscoring to folks. AAA says compared to last Memorial Day weekend, airfare has gone up about 6%. Hotels have gone up a whopping 42%. Rental cars have actually decreased from the big rental car shortage of early on in the pandemic so many things are getting more and more expensive in 2022. We've been hearing from folks who are shuttering their Memorial Day plans, even though the AAA numbers say 34.9 million Americans will drive 50 miles or more over the five-day Memorial Day travel period. Some are saying they simply cannot afford it. Some are saying that flying is cheaper rather than their regular Memorial Day weekend road trip. It's a pretty Incredible confluence of things here, Pamela.
1: Yeah,
0: it certainly is. And one of these price hikes go beyond travel. Talk about confluence. you got the cost of groceries, clothes, and rent yeah. being up. Are there any signs that the cost of living could begin to go back down?
6: You know, it, housing prices could start to soften a little bit. Rents could start to soften a little bit because, of course, you've got the Federal Reserve starting to hike interest rates. And that tends to bring the cost of housing down. Now, whether that's going to really help offset the pain of those rising gas prices, those food prices, you know, that's 25 percent of the budget of a lot of working people. So um, if those keep going up, uh, I I don't think that you're going to have people feeling like they're getting a break. Um, And I'm certainly looking politically at how that might affect uh, the midterm elections.
0: Pete, the tourism industry is just beginning to see numbers rise back to pre-pandemic levels. Could the drastic rise in prices resulting in Americans staying home? be another gut punch to hotels and restaurants
5: we'll see you know the travel industry is so intertwined the airlines rely on 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 hotels and rental cars gas it is all so interconnected here and we know that when you adjust it for the cost of inflation the cost of gas right now four dollars and 62 cents for a gallon of regular in the united states that is the highest we have seen since memorial day 2012. what is really interesting to me and so many analysts is that They just think that Americans are just so undaunted when it comes to travel. There's this whole notion of Mm pent-up demand, revenge travel. People want to get out. They've been shuttered inside for a long time, and now they're simply ready to go. So they're really swallowing this incredibly high cost of travel, not only on the roads, but also by air. They just simply don't care, and they're going to do it anyway you know, the demand has really not gone down all that much when it comes to the demand for gas. GasBuddy even put out data today that said people are still buying a lot of gas and that we may not see because of that yeah. an end to these high prices. We could see July and August being really high as well, too, Pamela.
0: Yeah, we could. All right, Pete Muntean, Rana Ruhar, thank you both. And coming up, how Julia Child's legacy is still inspiring chefs around the world decades after her television show went off the air. Turning to our pop league now, beloved culinary icon Julia Child has been inspiring at home and professional chefs for decades with her unmistakable voice and lighthearted approach to cooking. Well, the new scene in film Julia tells the story of the legendary cook who changed the way Americans think about food, television and the roles of women in American life. Jake Tapper spoke with celebrity chef Antonia Lafazzo about Julia Child and the lessons she's learned from her.
10: And joining us now is celebrity chef Antonia LaFaso. She's also the head judge on the Julia Child cha- Challenge on our sister channel, The Food Network. Antonia, Julia Child's style of cooking continues to inspire so many people, including professional chefs such as yourself. What has it been like to host your own TV show based on this culinary icon?
4: Uh, you know, this was the most humbling experience I think I've had in my career to date, um, being able to host a competition show or be the lead judge of a competition show that really um, features this icon, this woman who, you know, at a time when, um, you know, cooking on television wasn't necessarily a thing, um, you know, in the United States, we loved canned food and microwavable food where she brought this idea of technique and French cooking to the United States. I mean, it's, it's a literal dream come true.
10: So Julia Child's seen as a trailblazer for showing women belong in the male-dominated world of professional cooking. As someone who grew up watching reruns of her shows on TVs, what lessons did you learn and have you applied any of them as a host?
4: It's this idea of people feeling comfortable with who they are, what they represent in food, and being able to express that openly and being okay to fail. Um, Also, what she did was teach fundamental cooking the foundation, um, the very, very start. I think so many times we come into this idea that everything has to be quick, everything has to be fast um, and not really taking the uh, the time to learn the why and the how and sort of that long process. And she was all about that. She was all about like teaching someone the basics so that they understand how those building blocks learn in, um building blocks work in food. I do that as a judge when I'm uh, judging contestants, I do that as a host. For me, the biggest takeaway is that Julia Child was unapologetic about the way she spoke, um, how, you know, sort of loud and at the same time gracious she was, and was just like, you know what? This is who I am. This is what I represent. This is what I want to share with the world. This is a mistake. It's okay. Love your mistakes. Um, and I take that into my cooking, into my judging, and into my hosting.
10: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, unapologetic and unafraid, right? I mean, Julia Child was unafraid. Yes. When it came to making mistakes in the kitchen, she encouraged people to be courageous. In fact, let's take a a look at a clip from the new CNN film, Julia.
9: I'm going to try and flip this over, which is a rather daring thing to do. You just have to have the courage of your convictions, particularly if it's sort of a loose mass like this. Well, that didn't go very well. If she made a mistake, she was not remotely rattled. I didn't have the courage to do it the way I should have. But you can always pick it up and if you're alone in the kitchen, who is going to see? She felt that
6: that that
0: making a mistake was a good thing, just so that she could then show you how to fix it.
9: Anytime that anything like this happens, you haven't lost anything because you can always turn this into something else. We'll pretend that this was supposed to be a baked potato
10: dish. So how do you handle uh, mistakes that you make in your cooking?
4: You know, I talk about this all the time. Um, you know, mistakes are, sometimes mistakes lead you into a direction where you're like, oh my God, this recipe is better. I had no idea um, that it could be this way or, you know, or then it has you sort of thinking critically, right? Where you're like, okay, well, this has now happened. How do I step in and, you know, either repurpose, you know, if it's a soup and it's oversalted, you know, how can I sort of break it down or add things to it to absorb the, the salinity, fix it the other part to it too is that that cooking is a journey and there's parts where you know the journey is messy and but the stories behind it and the process of moving through that journey is really what makes you better at what you do so expecting something to be perfect the first time in life whether it's cooking or anything else is sort of you know it's it's not something that's really attainable and so this idea that everything has to be perfect doesn't work
10: celebrity chef Antonio LaFasa, thank you so much and be sure to tune in The all-new CNN film, Julia, premieres tonight at 8 p.m. Eastern, only here on CNN.
0: I'm Pamela Brown, and for Jake Tapper for the special edition of The Lead, and on this Memorial Day, we honor the fallen men and women who died serving their country. Our coverage continues now with Jim Acosta in the Situation Room.